0: Harvest Merry Christmas it's good to uh, spend this morning with you Um, if you have a Bible uh, open it turn to John chapter 7 we're actually just gonna be looking at one verse this morning it's gonna be in chapter 8 but I want to set that up give you the context of why Jesus says what he does there are ushers coming down the aisles if you need a Bible just raise your hand if you forgot to bring yours or don't have one uh, you're gonna want God's Word in front of you if you don't have a Bible of your own please take that as our gift Um, Connor said in his announcements. Did did he talk fast in his announcements? Yeah, like he was talking really fast. See, one of the things we like to do to the new guy is give him five minutes of announcements and tell him he's only got three minutes to do it. So just one of those things we do for fun. But but one of the things that he said is we really do enjoy Christmas at Harvest. And here's what I would tell you: if you're not in the Christmas spirit by December 10th, that's on you. That's not on us. If you go to our website. Um, we have put out daily devotionals i 'd really really encourage you to check them out each week. it 's a challenge from god 's word, it 's music. it 's been good for my heart. Hopefully you are getting in the Christmas spirit. I get to preach this morning. We are in a series looking at jesus the light. And uh, I chose this wonderful passage from John seven and eight, where there 's an argument going on. It's between siblings. Nothing spices up a holiday like a family fight, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. So what you're going to see in chapter 7 is it begins with kind of a family fight, and then it spreads to the neighborhood, and then it kind of spreads through the community and the city, and people are arguing they're taking sides. And uh, Jesus is going to confront that directly with the words that he says. And though we're looking at one verse... There's a lot we got to get through because we're going to end tonight's service in communion. And the argument that we look at in the discussion that we study this morning, it's going to put us in the box as well. Because you're going to have to pick a side in this argument. Where do you stand? Jesus will not let you be Switzerland. He won't let you stay neutral. And um, well, let's just jump in. The big idea this morning is this. We boast about what we care most about. We boast about what we care most about. John seven, starting in verse one, it says this: "After Jesus went about in Galilee, or after this, Jesus went about in Galilee, He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him." So Israel's divided into two parts: Galilee's in the north. Judea's in the south. Jerusalem is in Judea. It's part of the south. And what it says is the leaders in Israel, the religious leaders, they want to kill Jesus, so he's not going to Jerusalem. He is staying away from Jerusalem. He is in Galilee because they want to kill him. there. Same, saying, I, it makes sense to me. If they're trying to kill you. You stay north. That's what Jesus is doing. Then read in verse 3. I hope you read God's word with an inquisitive eye. Look what verse 3 says. It says, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea. What are they looking to do to him in Judea? Kill him. What do the brothers tell him to do? Go to where you're going to get killed. Are you sensing the tension in the family already starting to build? There's something going on between the brothers here where Jesus is avoiding Judea, but they're saying, hey, why don't you go down to Judea? Now, what's happening is verse 2 tells you that at that time, it was the time that they were celebrating the Feast of Booths, and there's seven feasts or holidays on the Jewish calendar, four of them in the spring, three of them in the fall. Three of them require families to do a pilgrimage down to Jerusalem. Two of those are in the spring. The last feast of the year, the seventh feast, is the Feast of Booths. And typically, everyone in Jerusalem would go down to, or everyone in all of Israel would go down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths. What they would do is, it was like a big camping trip. They would live in tents or in booths, and they would celebrate the fact that God led them through the wilderness, out of slavery in Egypt, to the Promised Land. And it's interesting, but in this case, Jesus is not going to Judea because his life is threatened down there, and the brothers are like, hey, why don't you go to Judea? It's interesting, in verse 5, it says, the brothers didn't believe in him. So you're in a situation where there's a dispute, even amongst family members, amongst siblings, is Jesus who he claims to be? Who is this Jesus? By the time we get to verse 10 of chapter 7, it says this, Jesus had told his brothers, no, I won't go with you now. But then in verse 10, it says, But after his brothers had gone to the feast, then Jesus also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, No, he is leading people astray. So now there's a debate. It's not just in the family about who is Jesus. It's in the community. Some are saying he's a good man, Others are saying, no, he's a deceiver. So those are the two sides of the argument. Is he a good man or is he a deceiver? Which side of that argument is right? Neither. It's like saying, what's your favorite food? Broccoli or Brussels sprouts? False. Neither of those are good enough. Neither answer. Jesus being a good man, uh, that's not sufficient. It won't get you home. Jesus is going to force the issue later on in chapter 8. It says this in Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So, they're looking to kill him in Judea. He goes into Jerusalem, the main city in Judea. He enters the main place in the city, the temple, and begins preaching. Verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. So, the, the leaders must have been bragging that they were going to kill Jesus because it was kind of known amongst the crowd that if Jesus shows up, this isn't going to go well for him. But he strolls right into the temple, he begins teaching, and nothing happens. And the people are like, What in the world's going on? So they immediately go right to the conspiracy theory, they say in verse 26. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Like, do they actually think that this is the promised Messiah? Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, him being Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him. Why not? They were in power, they were the leaders, they were in control, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So, so what John is stressing is he's saying, though the, people, or the leaders sought to kill him, the people can't figure out why nothing's going on, and what John is saying is they can't touch him because his time hasn't come. God's in control. Even in the midst of the chaos and the confusion, God is on the throne. It says in verse 31, Yet many of the people believed in him. It's interesting, they said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? They they consider Jesus miracles, they consider his teaching, and they're like, how in the world could the Messiah do any more to convince us than this man is doing right now? Because the people began to believe in him, look at verse 32, it says, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Jesus. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest Jesus. Okay, so now the conflict is going to get real. Jesus is going to be arrested. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day. So this is the last holiday of the year, kind of like our Christmas. Big festival. There's two things that are going on in this festival. Remembering how the nation was led out of slavery. This is at the end of the fall. The harvest is done. People are celebrating. They've traveled to Jerusalem. They're camping. And every morning during the feast, there is a ritual. It's called the water ritual. And the priests will leave the temple. They'll go down into the Kidron Valley to the pool of Siloam. They'll get water. They'll carry it up in basins, back up the hill into the temple, and they'll pour it on a bronze altar in the court of the temple. It's called the water ritual. This happens every day, but on the last day, it happens seven times. And we've already been told that Jesus is going into the temple daily to preach. So as Jesus is preaching, he's watching these priests go up and down, up and down, up and down, carrying this water, pouring it on the bronze altar. And it's interesting, we're told in verse 37, Jesus stands up and he cries out. So he didn't say this quietly. He cried out so that everyone in his court in the temple could hear. He said, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of that ritual. I'm the only thing that can truly satisfy. Jesus is really good at taking what's going on around him and applying spiritual truth to that situation or circumstance. Are we good at that? Are are we good at taking common things day to day, and giving glory to God through the things that we see and we talk about. Jesus was great. The water ritual was going on, and he cries out, if anyone thirsts, come to me. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is a prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? So the confusion, the argument continues. Is he a prophet? Is he really the promised Messiah? How in the world does the Messiah come from Coopersville? It can't happen. I mean, Galilee and Nazareth. I, I, I don't, I misspeak. Doesn't make sense. It's interesting. One of my favorite parts of chapter 7 is verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why didn't you bring him? Remember, they were sent to arrest him by the leaders. The officers responded, no one has ever spoken like this man. We got there, we were going to arrest him, but man, is he awesome. We couldn't throw the cuffs on him. Too intimidating. He's different. Even they don't know what to do with Jesus. So Jesus is teaching at this point on the last day of the great feast. Let's pick up the story in John 8, too. It says early in the morning, it's actually the next morning, it's the morning after the Feast of Booths, Jesus came again to the temple All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. It's the day after Christmas. It's the day after the Feast of Booths, and um, Jesus is back in the temple. All the people gather, and it's kind of like morning devotions with Jesus. How great would that be? Just to sit at Jesus' feet, and I'm sure he's unpacking things from the Old Testament and again taking things in the Old Testament and showing how they point to the coming Messiah that he's the fulfillment of what the prophets had promised to the nation. We don't know specifically what he was teaching. I don't think it really matters. I think morning devos with Jesus would be great, don't you? So he's back in the temple. It's interesting. Verse 20 tells us he spoke these words in the treasury as he taught in the temple. So just so you know, there was that water ritual in the morning during the Feast of Booths, and then what happened at night during the Feast of Booths was this. There were four huge torches that were set in the four corners of the temple by the treasury in the court of the treasury, or it was actually called the court of the women. It was as far into the temple his women were allowed to go. But in that common court, what they would do is they would light four huge torches every night, and those torches would basically light the whole city. Do I have a picture of that in my notes? Yeah, it kind of looked like that. That's a poor depiction. But these lights could be seen from throughout the city. They would light up the whole temple area, and people would gather there. They would sing. They would dance. dance. That was the central part of the party. But as Jesus is teaching this moment, the party's over. It's like Times Square after New Year's Eve. The stages are being torn down. The lights and these huge torches are probably being put away. They won't be lit again for another year. And Jesus is teaching devotions in the middle of this. The feast is now over. A little bit like the day after Christmas when all the presents have already been opened. Chris said, when he was a child, he felt this low-grade dissatisfaction after the last present was opened. Like, is this all that there is? I've looked forward to this. I know this even as a parent and a grandparent. My wife spends so much time, like she's Christmas shopping in October, November, and then you open the presents in about 45 minutes and like, really? It's all over. All that prep, all that anticipation. That's the scene. The lights are now ex- they're extinguished. It's a bittersweet moment for the people, and what makes it really be a bittersweet for the nation of Israel? The Feast of Booths is celebrating the release from bondage in Egypt, and the people celebrating the feast, they haven't experienced the freedom that they're actually celebrating, because what they are is there are people that find themselves once again in bondage, not to Egypt, but to Rome. Rome is the occupying army. They don't have freedom. Life is hard. They are an oppressed people, and it has been 1,500 years since God was their provision like they celebrated in the Feast of Booths. And in the midst of this, we finally get to the verse I want to focus on. You ready? Jesus stands up in the midst of this scene, and it says in verse 12, again Jesus spoke to them saying, "'I am the light of the world.'" Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay, so look at your notes. See where it says three truths? Okay, if you're keeping notes, see where it says three truths? Everybody with me? Everybody following that? I don't have three truths. I only have two. Sorry to let you down. Sorry to disappoint. I only came up with two. There's only two on the list down there. It says three cross out two. If you feel gypped and you're disappointed, I'll give you a quick truth. It's just a freebie for you if you feel let down, okay? Okay. Jersey Mike's is better than Jimmy John's. That's truth number one. Just write it down. It's true. Two truths from the text, not about sandwiches. Here's the first. Jesus is God. When Jesus stands up in the temple and says that I am the light of the world, the only light that leads to life, he is declaring himself to be God. He's not the first to make that claim. The prophets did. We read in Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. We're, we're told in Matthew, when Matthew quotes that verse from Isaiah, he says, you will call his name Emmanuel, which means, he puts in parents. God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. The prophet is declaring that Jesus, when he comes incarnate in the flesh, when he is born in the manger, that that is actually God taking on human flesh. Isaiah says it again in chapter 9. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light is shown. And then in verse 6 of Isaiah 9, he says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. What's that next words? Mighty God. The prophets clearly declared that Messiah would be God. The angels declared it. In Luke 2, when the angels appeared to the shepherds, in verse 10, it says, The angels said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Who is this Savior? He is Christ the Lord. The angels are saying that this baby in a manger, this Jesus, he is God, he is Lord And when Jesus stands up and the people can't figure it out, they're arguing, is he a good man? Is he a deceiver? Is he a prophet? Is he the promised Messiah? As the rulers are looking to arrest him, he stands up in the middle of the temple and he says, let me explain something to you, I'm God. And if you don't believe that that's what he's saying here, read the rest of chapter 8 in your own time, You're going to go through another 40 verses in this chapter, and all it's going to be is arguments about Jesus declaring that he is God. It doesn't sit real well with the Jewish leaders. Here's how it ends in the last verse of John 8. So they picked up stones to throw at Jesus. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the other temple, or went out of the temple Of all the religions that you can follow, of all the religions that you could study, Christianity is unique in claiming that Jesus was God. He's not a messenger from God. He is not a prophet. He is not somebody that represents God. He is actually God in human flesh. No other religion would dare make that claim. How can Christianity boast of such a thing? How can it be so bold? Because it's true. Jesus is God. Let me give you the second... Truth, I see in the text. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world in the context of what's going on around him in the court, here's truth number two. All other lights go out. All other lights go out. He is the only light that can pierce the dark darkness. And you need to be really, really careful which light you choose to follow, which path you're on, which light you choose to illuminate what you are pursuing Like the four torches that are being put away, disassembled, all lights go out. Do you remember the big idea what we boast about is what we care most about? Listen to the words of Jeremiah 9, verse 23. It says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. All other lights go out. This verse references if your light is wisdom, you just want to get smarter and educated and know more, eventually you're going to realize you're not as wise as you thought you were. The light goes out. If you're chasing might, that will wither. If you're chasing riches, it will not satisfy. Maybe your thing is, no, what I love is vacations. And I love adventure. And I love excitement. And you've always got something out there on your calendar that you can look forward to. The next adventure, the next trip, the next vacation. Hey, can I tell you something? You can fill your calendar with those things. Eventually, you're going to become bored. They won't ultimately satisfy. That light will go out. Maybe your thing is success or fame. You won't be able to hold it, man. That thing's going to shift and fall through your fingers. It's interesting. I was in uh, wealth management before I became a pastor. I was a real estate developer, and I was a securities trader. Here's one of the things that I learned about real estate and securities. It can be if you're not careful. If it's the light that you're pursuing, it can become like any other addiction. You had to do bigger and bigger developments to get the same rush. You had to trade more and more in bigger positions of stock to get the same thrill. If your thrill is gambling, you ever notice the ante has to keep increasing to keep your attention? Same problem with any addiction, any false light that we follow. Eventually, that light goes out, and it won't satisfy. Can I point you to two cautions Because not every light that we pursue is a bad thing. Often the things that we find most important, that are most important to us, they're really, really good things, but if we make good things the ultimate thing, eventually that's going to lead to disappointment and disillusionment. Would you agree? Let me give you two cautions, make this really practical for you. Here's a light that some of us pursue that I think if we make it the main thing, you'll become very disillusioned. That's church. It's church. I love the Christmas season at Harvest. I love the fact that so many people in our community love to come to Harvest. And and, and please hear me, not just at Christmas, but throughout the year, we try to do everything here at Harvest with excellence. If you listen to our worship team, they're rehearsing. Do you know we write a lot of our own music? Do Do you know that the videos that we've had the last two weeks up on the screen, not only is that our worship team performing them, our worship team wrote those songs. Even if you don't like the way they're performed, watch the words on those things. Those are two incredible songs that our people have written, going to great lengths to write, produce, film, the whole shot. Why go to all that effort? Why do we spend so much time preaching? And then when we preached last night, i deal with Cal coming back into the green room and said, Hey, it was a good message, but you got to fix this critiquing inside, pushing each other for excellence. We want everything that we do from small group ministry to our weekend worship services to our counseling ministry, we want to make sure that we do them with excellence. But can I can let you in on a little secret? We don't do that for you. We don't even care if you love it. We're doing it for our king. That's why we're doing it. And the role of the church is to make disciples and then point you to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the light that we're trying to reflect. We're not the light. We're just trying to point you to Jesus. That's our job. It's interesting, in the New Testament, there's 27 books. 21 of them are written to churches. If you were to go find any of those churches, more than a dozen of them named by name in the book of Revelation and in the other epistles, if you were to go to Ephesus or Galatia or any of the churches, Smyrna and Thyatira that are mentioned in the New Testament, and you were to look for that church, you know what you'd find? An archaeological site. They don't exist anymore. Why? Because the church is not the ultimate thing. Jesus Christ is the ultimate thing. I'll run into sometimes a young couple and they're either in counseling or they've come to church. I'm like, hey, so good to see you. What are you doing here? Oh, man, we're just struggling. We figured it was time we got back to church. Kids are crazy. Life's busy. We're fighting. Hoping church will solve the problem. Hey, glad you're back at church, but if that's as far as you get, man, that light's going to go out. It's not getting to church, it's getting to Jesus. You see the difference? It's subtle, but it's everything. Can I give you another example? Not just church, a caution there. Relationships. Relationships. I don't know why at Christmas I become very nostalgic. I've been reflecting on my childhood this week. And it's interesting. If, I'm the youngest of five kids, The second youngest is five years older than me. So it was like kid, 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 long time accident. That's who I am, okay? (laughs) Five years. And um, being the baby of the family, like many babies, you always hear from your siblings, oh, you had it so easy. Mom and dad were so light on you. You guys know what I'm talking about? That always happens to the youngest. That was for sure true in my case. I skated through. I was like raised by completely different parents than the other siblings the question is why why I think the other siblings wore them out I think they were just tired of parenting those kids were so difficult and quite honestly I came along I was a golden child I was so easy it's like you don't need rules do whatever you want I was so responsible well I don't know if either one of those are true here's kind of where I've landed I think I was the weird kid. And I think my parents looked at me and had no clue of what to do with me. I think my dad laid in bed and was like, Carol, that one's weird. I don't know what to do with our youngest son. And an example of that is when, when I was a sophomore in high school, I came home from school and my mom was like, hey, how'd your day go? And it's like, it was a pretty good day. I think I met the woman I'm going to marry. That's That's weird. It's just weird. I, I was at a basketball practice. I was the backup point guard on the JV basketball team. I was waiting through the girls' varsity practice because we used the same gym, and one of the varsity players, a freshman, she couldn't scrimmage with the team. She came and sat by me in practice, and I would just say this, a sophomore boy who was caught in the darkness saw a great light, okay? Kristen walked into my life. It changed everything. I started to get to school early, My parents were like, oh, he's so studious. Had nothing to do with that. Okay? I'd met Kristen. I would count the minutes. I I memorized her schedule. And I would get out of class and I would hurry down the hall in hopes of catching a glimpse of her. Maybe she'd smile at me. That would be awesome. Took me over a year to get her to date me. But I got to tell you, from that day through the rest of school, do they have that picture up? Okay. Okay. Something scary about this picture that I realized after I put it in. Do you see what's on my finger? That's my wedding ring. I was already married at that point. That's terrifying to me. we look so young. OK But in high school has high school sweethearts. If I went into I was at a small Christian school, if I went into the chapel, if I went to a sporting event, if I went to a school assembly, she was the person that I was looking for. And quite honestly, when I found her, she lit up the room. It got so psychotic. My senior year, I signed up for a class that no high school dude would do. I signed up for Shakespeare Lit. (laughs) Do you know why I signed up for it? Because Kristen was in it. But so many people, I don't even understand this, signed up for Shakespeare Lith. That they had to split it into two classes. There are a lot of guys that like Kristen. But anyways, so, so we sign up, but because I was a senior, I got first choice. I got put in the best teacher at the school, Gary Maskeliers. I got into his class. Kristen, being younger, she didn't make the cut. She went into another class with a horrible teacher who wore corduroy bell bottoms and Seinfeld pirate shirts. That was her, okay? That's how she looked every day. Nobody wanted to be in her class. Everybody wanted to be in Mascalier's class. Kristen was in hers. I was in the good profs. And guess what I did? I traded out so that I could be in class with Kristen. Forty years later, I can be here on a Sunday. If I walk into the cafe from my office or I walk into this room, Kristen's still the first face that I look for. And for me, she lights up the room here's what i tell you if shakespeare was alive today he wouldn't be writing about some punks named romeo and juliet he'd be telling our story okay but i want you to think about this for a minute how does mine and Kristen's story end if it's like most stories somewhere a year from now 10 years from now 20 years from now but somewhere down the line here's how our story ends One of us is standing surrounded by family and friends in a park while the other one is lowered into the ground on a box. Got a little dark there, didn't it? (laughs) That's how our story ends. And in that moment, if she is the ultimate light that I've been pursuing, or if I'm the ultimate light that she has been pursuing, what do I do then? What does she do then? Where do we go? How do we go on? The thing that gives strength to Kristen and my marriage and our relationship is we're running together pursuing the same light, and that's the light that never fades. It's the light of the world. It's Jesus Christ. It's the light that gives lives. We've given our lives to that. We're partners in that pursuit, and that's the thing that holds us steady, and that light never goes out. Two cautions. One is church. One is relationships, both good things, that when we make them the ultimate things, we put ourselves at risk. So what are our two responses this morning? If what Jesus said is true, if he is actually God, if he is the light that doesn't fade, if he is the only light that is a giver of life, we have two options. The people 2,000 years ago, they were forced to choose. What are we going to do with Jesus? Are we going to believe in him or are we going to reject him? The same holds true to us today. Here's the first thing that we can choose to do. We can choose to retreat into darkness. John 3 verse 19 says, speaking of Jesus, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. The light has come into the world, the people love the darkness. Why do they love the darkness? The text is very, very clear, because they understand if they come to the light that their deeds are going to be exposed. Here's what I would say to everyone in this room, and I don't care if whether culture likes it or not, everyone in this room, me included, we have a sin issue, don't we? And while culture is telling you you can do whatever you want and nothing is called sin anymore, that word's been canceled The Bible is very, very clear. Each of us has a sin issue, and we've got to decide what we're going to do with it. And because of our sin, when the light, when we're exposed to the gospel, we don't immediately resonate with it because the sin is a problem, and we find ourselves burdened with guilt and shame. And many, most, will retreat from the light rather than deal with that issue. And they will focus on other things. They will wear a mask. They will put on a charade. They will compare themselves to others. Anything to try to lift the guilt and shame that the light has just revealed because of our problem with the sin. That's why it says that men love darkness more than light. It's interesting. Jesus says in verse 12, I am the light of the world. The fight continues. He says this in John 8, verse 23. I don't know how he could make it clearer than this. I've been declaring that I am the Messiah since I started my earthly ministry. The problem isn't the clarity of my communication. You're not listening. And because you're not listening, there's confusion. And the reason you're not listening is because you understand that if I'm Messiah and who I claim to be, you've got a sin problem and you're going to have to bow the knee. That's why there was contention. Unconfessed sin is like a cancer. You got to deal with it. You can't stay with your sin in the darkness. It won't get better away from the light. The way that you kill perpetual sin and things that you can't break free of, the things that hold you in bondage, you drag that sin into the light. You're never going to get over those addictions and those bad habits through behavior modification, trying to do better, going through ritual after ritual. You've got to come to Jesus Christ. You have to repent, and you have to bow the knee. It's interesting. So we can retreat into darkness, or we can believe and boast. Weird word that I chose, boast there. Let me explain why. We can believe and boast. Paul is boasting in Colossians 1, verse 13, speaking of Christ. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and He's transferred us, or speaking of God, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. He's saying, God has freed us from the dominion, the control, the shackles of sin by providing His Son. And through His Son, we have forgiveness, and we are set free. We have redemption when we are willing to step out of the darkness, when to confess our sin, to admit our shortcomings, what happens next is truly amazing. Not only do we experience God's love, not only do we experience his forgiveness, not only does he not rub our noses in our past mistakes, crazy thing happens, he boasts in us. Did you know that? He brags about us. You're like, I'm not sure that's true. I don't know if a holy God boasts. Oh, yes, he does. And he boasts about you. Two examples. In Job 1, verse eight, Satan has come into the presence of the Lord. Lord says to Satan, "Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God is bragging about Job. Why does he brag? Because Job is a man who's chosen to fear God and turn away from evil. What an incredible thing that the God of this universe would brag about Job. Now, to to most of us in the room, that's somewhat unrelatable. Because if you know the story of Job, he goes through huge crisis, goes through a lot of trial, and never curses God. And you're like saying, I don't know that I measure up to Job's standard. Well, I got great news for you. He doesn't just brag about Job. He brags about this other guy back in 1 Kings. His name is Ahab. Do you guys remember him from our study in 1 Kings? Like Ahab was a king when in our study in Elijah, I don't have to say this, First Kings 21 verse 25, it says, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. Nobody's worse than this dude, Okay whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. God says that he's going to deal with Ahab's sin, and in response, verse 27, and when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth on his flesh, and he fasted and laid in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. So so he repents. The Lord says, I'm going to deal with your sin. He repents. He's the most evil king that's ever been over Israel. And then we read, In verse 28, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? God is bragging about Ahab to his faithful prophet Elijah. I'm not as good a man as Elijah. That would have just ticked me off. But he's bragging about this man who was the most sinful leader in Israel's history. How could he do that? Because what he's bragging isn't in what he did. He repented. He came out of darkness. He stepped into the light. And we're not just met with love and forgiveness. God actually boasts about it because it's in that moment when all of his attributes are on full display. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but would have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. If this is the heart of God, if he's waiting for us to repent of our sin, to come out of the darkness, to move towards the light of the world, the Savior in a manger, why would we choose to stay in darkness? Which leads us to communion. I'm going to call the ushers forward. Communion is where we celebrate the fact that God became Emmanuel, God with us in Jesus Christ, that, God took, or that Jesus took on human form, that he humbled himself, took on the appearance of man, that he walked among us, that he loved us enough that he would come to experience everything that we experience yet without sin, that he went to a cross and he was willing to die in our place to take the wrath of God on himself so that we would never have to experience the wrath of God. Please hear me. Communion is for the followers of Jesus Christ. Communion is for the followers of Jesus Christ. Well, who is a follower of Jesus Christ? John 12, 46 says, I have come into, or he said, I've come into the world his light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Back to our big idea. You boast about what you care most about. Is Jesus the thing that you boast about? Is he really your Savior? Is he really your Lord? Because if that's not true, don't participate in communion. That would be silly. You'd be celebrating a freedom from bondage while you're still in shackles. You would be celebrating a light while you still live in darkness. It's interesting. Paul says this in Galatians 6, 14. He says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Philippians 3, verse 7 says, again, Paul, whatever gain I had, I counted for loss, I counted for loss as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. I close with this Advent thought. What is worse boasting about in your life apart from the love of God? Is that the thing that that defines you? Is that the light that you're pursuing? Or are you caught chasing other lights that will eventually fade? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he is your Lord, he is your King, he is your boast. That's what we celebrate with communion. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the fact that you were bold enough 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem to declare, who, uh, declare clearly who you were. The people were forced to make a choice back then, and we are forced with the same choice this morning. Are you the light of the world? Are you the giver of life, or are you not? And Father, for those who have made that choice, who stepped out of darkness into light, we celebrate you as King. Father, for those who are yet to make this choice, I pray that this morning would be a moment that they're confronted with this decision, that they would consider the things that they're pursuing. Are they really satisfied? Are they experiencing the joy that they thought they would pursuing other lights? Father, you're the only light that gives life, and for that we praise you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.